we are back, and you know from the music that what we're going to do now is the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're into the week magazine. It was a good week last week for active seniors with a new study suggesting that the active ingredient in Viagra could lower users' risks of Alzheimer's disease and by up to 70%. The researchers speculated that the Viagra might have, quote, neuroprotective effects, unquote, in addition to its better-known one. And it was a bad week for Trump ally Kanye West, a.k.a. Ye, who in 2022 was named Anti-Semite of the Year by StopAntiSemitism.com for his descent into Hitler praise and rancid Jew hatred. Ye reportedly lost an estimated $1 billion in endorsements and licensing deals this past year. And know how it is a guy like this can generate a billion dollars in licensing and endorsement deals is something we just uh, have a hard time contemplating. But it is what it is. And we'd have to say it was an ugly week last week for Republicans seeking an alternative to Donald Trump and his pal Ye, with the news that the leading alternative, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has asked the Florida Supreme Court this past week to impanel a grand jury that would investigate wrongdoing, supposed wrongdoing involving COVID-19 vaccines, suggesting that Pfizer and Moderna made false claims about the efficacy and safety of their mRNA formulations. DeSantis, who's grown increasingly hostile toward vaccines, creating something of a contrast with Donald Trump, as saying that the pharmaceutical industry has a notorious history of misleading the public for financial gain. He announced the call for the grand jury, which would likely be impaneled in the Tampa area, alongside Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ladapo, who raised the issue of vaccinated people developing a heart inflammation called myocarditis. Meanwhile, a recent Yale analysis estimated that COVID vaccines prevented more than 3.2 million deaths in the U.S. and saved more than $1.1 trillion in medical costs. That is a startling figure, 3 million deaths. But had no vaccines become available, we suspect it's probably accurate. As for vaccines causing myocarditis, Dr. Ladapo should be lumped together with America's frontline doctors. Oh, and by the way, the leader of that group was recently indicted for massive financial misuse of the funds that had been raised to support it. What a surprise! And dear listener, you no doubt noted, because we talked about on this program, that Senator Raphael Warnock defeated challenger Herschel Walker in the Georgia senatorial race. It was reported the, the most expensive senatorial race in history with more than $450 million spent. The week couldn't help but note that Walker, a former football star whose candidacy was promoted by Donald Trump, struggled through his campaign He showed a limited grasp of issues, made false claims about his academic and career achievements, and faced a series of damaging personal revelations, including his ex-wife's claim that he'd abused her and held a gun to her head, and two former girlfriends' assertions that the anti-abortion candidate had paid to terminate two of their pregnancies. Oh, and also the revelation that he'd fathered several previously unacknowledged children. 
Now, what strikes me about this is in spite of running this incredibly incompetent campaign, Herschel Walker only lost by a margin of 51.3 to 48.6%. To us, that seemed suspiciously close for someone so bloody incompetent. Sounding off on this is our friend Greg Pallast, who noted on his website, record turnout in Georgia, my ass, noted Greg. From the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, math challenge reporters have repeated the completely upside-down fable of a, quote, record turnout in the Georgia Senate runoff, said Pallast. Record turnout? The official count tucked away in the Georgia Secretary of State's files showed the turnout fell by a breathtaking one million votes. In his January 2021 race, Warnock garnered 4,484,000 votes. In this last turnaround, he gathered 3 0.53 million votes. Said Palast, since when is a 1 million vote nosedive a record turnout? He goes on to note that mail-in ballots fell off a cliff. Absentee ballots, which Warnock won two years ago by a stunning 2 to 1 margin, plummeted by a breathtaking 83% from over a million in the 2021 runoff to just 191,000 last week. Said Palace, where do the repeaters, I don't call them reporters, get this, quote, record turnout canard, this hot steaming load of fact-defying horse plop? Well, it comes from Brian Kemp and his Jim Crow 2.0 enforcer, GOP Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's press releases. Like these doozies, record-breaking turnout in Georgia's runoff election and record-shattering turnout continues Tuesday. Well, the fact is that two years ago, a 400,000-vote plurality of mail-in ballots delivered the victory margin for Warnock and his running mate, John Ossoff. These absentee ballots also won the presidential contest for Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Notes Palast, a stunned Kemp and his GOP-controlled legislature took note and within mere weeks passed SB 202, 98 pages of restrictions that made absentee balloting all but illegal, especially in case of another runoff. Here are some of SB 202's greatest vote suppression hits. In Atlanta's four counties, the number of drop boxes for mail-in votes was slashed from 107 to 25, while at the same time the law ordered an increase in the number of drop boxes in rural Republican counties. The result? White voters had a 300% greater access to drop boxes than black voters in Atlanta. This is a big deal because Kemp's SB202 also cut the period for the runoff from 60 days to just 26, leaving almost no time for counties to print, send, and receive mail-in votes. Unlike other states, Georgia requires the ballot to be received, not simply postmarked by Election Day, making Dropbox access all the more important. And it gets worse. SB202 crushed the number of early voting days from 17 to 7. Drop boxes were removed from outside government buildings and locked inside, only available on those seven early voting days instead of the full 60 in the last runoff. And worst, they were only available during business hours instead of 24-7. Says Palace, because not one major news outlet descended from the myth of the record high turnout, Kemp and boosters were able to claim that SB202 did not suppress the vote. The Wall Street Journal boasted, Jim Crow 2.0 dies again in Georgia. ABC News reported, Georgia Senate runoff race sees record turnout. 
What's the source? Well, these stories universally relied on the Republican Secretary of State's press releases, not the official returns. Raffensperger seduced reporters with a claim of record-breaking midterm early voting, but this refers only to in-person voting. This minor bump in in-person voting was the result of suppressing the mail-in votes by more than 80% since the last election. Those no longer allowed to vote by mail in 2020 were forced to stand in line, artificially boosting in-person numbers. Anyway, we're quite certain that Greg Palast is absolutely correct about all of this. And that's why we hope to bring him on the show again in 2023. We also hope to bring back on this program Jefferson Morley and his collaborator, John Newman. Two men who, like Greg Palast, uh, did not just accept the press releases of, of government agencies and actually did some digging into the question of the JFK files and the assassination itself. Like the Georgia Secretary of State's office, the CIA recently released some talking points on the JFK files, which were supposed to have been released last week. For that matter, they were supposed to have been released in 2017. They still have not been, and as will become clear in a moment, it seems certain that they will not be fully released for, well, perhaps indefinitely. To quote from Jefferson Morley's, reporting on the JFK Facts website. Below are the CIA's talking points on the December 15th release of JFK files. They were distributed to select Washington reporters in an effort to blunt the terrible press coverage the agency has been getting from mainstream news organizations because of its continuing failure to comply with the JFK Records Act. Said Morley, the CIA's talking points are not reliable. The first excerpt is that CIA is committed to the JFK Act's goal of ensuring maximum transparency with respect to government records concerning President Kennedy's assassination. Morley said, This is false. The CIA resisted full disclosure on its sources and methods related to Lee Harvey Oswald since the day President Kennedy was killed. When commissioned attorneys pressed for access to CIA files on Oswald back in March of 1964, Counterintelligence Chief James Angleton said he wanted to wait out the commission, which he did. In May of 1964, Deputy CIA Director Richard Helms lied under oath when he told the Warren Commission that the CIA's information about Oswald obtained from other government agencies before Kennedy was killed was probably minimal. In fact, notes Morley, Angleton had been monitoring Oswald's travels, politics, and personal life since November of 1959. His staff was even reading Oswald's mail while JFK was alive. At this point, I want to interject that Mr. Newman and Mr. Morley queried a member of the CIA, who was part of Angleton's staff, regarding a request for information about Lee Oswald months before the assassination. This is when he visited, or supposedly visited, Mexico City in September of 63. When the embassy in Mexico City asked for what information the CIA had about Oswald, they were given not the most up-to-date information. And when queried about it, the CIA person said, well, that's probably because they had an operational interest in Lee Oswald. That's right. Months before the assassination, the Central Intelligence Agency had an operational interest in the alleged assassin and was not divulging what it knew about him. This is pre-assassination. 
Noted Morley, in June 1978, undercover officer George Joannides lied to the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigators by saying he didn't know the identity of the CIA officer who publicized Oswald's pro-Castro activities before and after the assassination. And wouldn't you know it, it turns out that Joannides himself was that officer. Now, information about George Joannides is pretty high in the list of what people like Morley would like to see the CIA release, but they don't want to do it, and there seems to be no sign that they're going to do it. Joe Biden has kicked the can down the road, supposedly giving the CIA six more months to take take you just one more look at this information, see if you don't want to release it. I mean, you've been gathering evidence on this guy dating back 64 years. You might want to fully disclose what you knew and what you know. By the way, in reading up on this, one of the things that really struck me was the fact that when the House Select Committee looked into the JFK assassination in the late 70s, they produced a report on Oswald's trip down to Mexico, which to this day remains very mysterious, very clouded, very lied about. And in the appendix to that report, which was classified for many years, was finally released, well, the appendix has not been released. It was titled... What was the relationship of Oswald to the CIA? Yes, a report on that very topic made almost 50 years ago by an official government agency still remains hidden. And yet we're still told they have nothing to hide. We'll have more to say about that uh, in the coming year. We do note that there does seem to be a change in the attitude of most mainstream media outlets about this. Even outlets like The Morning Joe... Outlets like Tucker Carlson on Fox have come forward to say that this is ridiculous. Writing about this, Jeff Morley said the traditional mode of mainstream JFK journalism, which is an airy or vitriolic dismissal of anyone with doubts about the official story, has been replaced by common sense skepticism about the CIA's penchant for assassination secrecy. With a willingness to hear alternative views, and in Tucker Carlson's case, a full-throated primetime TV attack on the government's credibility. Carlson expressed incredulity at the government's theory that one man killed Kennedy for no reason, another man killed the alleged assassin because he felt like it. Carlson asked, what are the odds of that? Which is a reasonable question, says Morley, that's been asked by millions of Americans over the last six decades. All right, let's talk about some more tech stuff. In its October 16th issue from this year, New Scientist magazine notes that intelligence agencies may be intercepting encrypted messages and storing them in the hope they can eventually develop a practical quantum computer to crack them. report comes from a security researcher who has worked with the UK government. The article notes, though dozens of research groups are currently trying to build a practical quantum computer, none has yet publicly succeeded. Such a machine could quickly find the prime numbers that serve as the multiplication building blocks allow us to have encrypted communications. Noted Matthew Sparks in the magazine, this seemingly innocuous ability, I don't know what he means by that, it's not seemingly innocuous, because it would fundamentally break encryption based on the difficulty of finding prime number factors of large numbers. This puts email, banking records, and cryptocurrencies at risk. Researchers are already working on algorithms designed to keep data secure if this happens. But Anderson Chang, a cybersecurity expert, said that it could already be too late 
as the Harvest Now Decrypt Later attacks are well underway. This involves intercepting encrypted data and storing it for decryption once a quantum computer is developed. And if you don't find this scary, then you're not paying attention. This piece several years back expressed open skepticism that given the sheer volume of data that needed to be stored, quantum computers were never going to become a reality. Anyway, we don't have any, any, any opinion on this because we're not experts on quantum computing. A lot of people do think it's going to be possible. And the most recent edition of The Economist notes that uh, the time has come to address the security risks that quantum computers will pose when they start working. To quote from the piece, quantum computers are still in development, but as they become more powerful and more reliable, they will pose a threat to how we transmit and store confidential data, including bank transactions, sensitive government information, and intellectual property. That is because unlike existing computers, quantum computers will be able to crack the encryption systems that provide secure data communication and storage and underpin the global economy. Criminals and other adversaries know that this will be possible one day. Well, maybe. And they're not waiting to get their hands on sensitive data. They're already carrying out store now, decrypt later attacks, SNDL, stealing data for future decryption with quantum computers. According to the Department of Homeland Security, the decryption of this data could be feasible as soon as 2030. If this happens, any encrypted data acquired by adversaries today will have a maximum confidentiality period of eight years. Critics of big tech have suggested that, you know, just because something can be built doesn't mean you should. Examples would include the hydrogen bomb. The idea that we want to build something that will completely destroy our system of electronic communications just, I don't know, to us doesn't seem like a good idea. On the other hand, if it is possible, and this power will enable you to rule the world, and it certainly might, research is going to continue along this avenue. It is our hope that it actually will not become possible, because imagine the consequences if it is. We're going to try and reach out in the future to some genuine experts in this area to see if they can educate us. And in the meantime, uh, with this eight-year window of opportunity, we expect that mattress sales to increase as people may want to store their money underneath one. Of course, we do want to note that in response to this threat, these same bright sparks are working on methods to fight it. In recent years, researchers have developed quantum-resistant cryptographic schemes, new forms of encryption that even future quantum computers will be unable to crack. They are known collectively as post-quantum cryptography, PQC. Anyway, we sort of anticipate this, uh, this, this arms race, as it were, of having the same happy effect on, on the, uh, the world situation as did the U.S. and Soviet arms race back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and up to the present day. You've got some nukes? Well, we'll counter those nukes with our nukes, and then you can counter our nukes with your nukes, and then we'll counter your nukes with our nukes. Nobody really won in that deal except uh, the people that got paid to make the stuff. And in another parallel realm of of high-tech mysteries, we have the fact that Lawrence Livermore Laboratory announced that they apparently, for the first time, released more energy from hydrogen fusion than was put into the system. 
as reported on this program and elsewhere. Those are bright sparks in Lawrence Livermore have 192 lasers, which they're pointing at a pellet of deuterium and tritium, I think encased inside of a diamond, to try and force fusion. Now, tricking atoms to do this was, uh, <laughs> was first developed in the 1950s when the aforementioned hydrogen bomb came online. The problem with the H-bomb is that it is an uncontrolled fusion reaction. It tends to vaporize anything and everything nearby. And it turns out that these researchers at Lawrence Livermore, uh, where the hydrogen bomb was originally developed by Edward Teller and others, well, the research they're doing apparently has more application to H-bombs perhaps than controlled nuclear fusion that will save the world. At least, that's the viewpoint presented by The Economist. Said the magazine, Livermore researchers have released more energy from an imploding pellet than was inserted by the laser beams. They have, in other words, ignited a nuclear spark, which burned for a while through the pellet in a self-sustaining way, something never before achieved. And that might be scaled up to release a far bigger fraction of the potential energy in the pellet's contents. Need in principle, and no doubt important for understanding hydrogen bombs. But this approach can be a power source only if the energy released exceeds not merely the incident on the pellet, but rather that employed to generate the beams. That is a part that's been lost in the shuffle of this. Yes, the fusion reaction that was induced did exceed the energy of the beams that hit the pellet. But of course, there's always a loss in a system like this. And the total amount of energy that went into the lasers was much higher. To make this thing practical, the release of energy has to exceed the total energy put into the system. As noted the magazine, the huge inefficiencies involved in creating those beams means only a tiny fraction of the generative energy behind them arrives at the pellet. So, practical fusion reaction, still a long way off. And there are those who still claim that it's probably never going to happen, kind of like quantum computing. The thing is, we're not physicists here. We're just a country doctor, Jim. But let's add this list of things we need to continue to take a look at. Boy, we've got quite a pile. All right, we've got three items left and four minutes to summarize them in. The first would be the cover story of the San Jose Mercury News dating to last Sunday, showing five very grim-looking school officials under a headline, Fentanyl on Campus. In the special report, the newspaper was taking a look at how one Bay Area school saved a student's life and another missed the signs of an overdose, implying that what schools need to be doing right now is treating everybody's fentanyl overdoses. One of these subheadlines was, is your school ready? More than 60% of school districts have yet to train staff for the deadly opioid scourge. This is clear thinking. Why don't, why don't we give all of the teachers firearms training like someone to do to prevent school shooting? I think we saw down in Uvalde how, how well that would have worked when dozens of SWAT team members were, able, were unable to stop a single shooter. Anyway, there's more to talk about regarding the fentanyl slash opium scourge, and we're going to have to bring uh, Howard uh, McKinney back on to do just that, our resident toxicologist and drug abuse expert. And here's an item from the high-tech world we're all now living in. A piece a couple months ago in the Financial Times by Pelita Clark asked, 
How did stopping by a colleague's desk with a question get labeled as a terrible workplace faux pas? The author recently heard about a man who had been vainly emailing a woman he worked with to try and get something approved. A colleague said, why don't you just go over and ask her to approve it? The aghast man replied, I'm not just going to go and desk bomb her. This promotes the question, since when has something as innocuous as asking someone an unsolicited question at work become so offensive? In the office, there seems to be a growing intolerance of interruption. Fine, people wearing headphones can be left alone. Otherwise, all are more or less fair bombing game. Noted the Times, it's way more efficient than emailing and usually more enjoyable. And lastly, it appears that researchers are closing in on answering the question of how it is we got logger. According to The Economist, logger seems to have originated sometime around the 15th century. Before that, all European beers were ales. The difference is that lager ferments and ages best in cool conditions. It requires Saccharomyces pastorianus, a cold-tolerant yeast species. Ales ferment nearer to room temperature. That needs a different yeast, S. crevisiae, other versions of which are used by bakers to leaven bread. So there's been a mystery of how it is that S. pastorianus itself uh, came about. It apparently is a hybrid of, of a couple of yeasts. And by genetic research, they believe they determined that the original yeast in question came from Patagonia, which might explain why it's cold tolerant. Maybe it was, you know, developed there during an ice age. But it's also been found in North America, China, and New Zealand, spread presumably by natural processes like blowing in the wind or hitching rides on migrating birds and insects. Anyway, this might seem to be a pretty esoteric subject, which kind of yeast gave us which kind of beer. But I don't know. I'm not a guy who enjoys ales. So whatever it is that brought about the development of lager, well, I'm, I'm just going to say bravo in general. And that pretty much does it for time. This program was produced by Edward McGillan, who has a distaste for both lager and ale. Completely the wrong yeast in both. Could be. Well, as we wrap up this year, we would note that uh, this marks 20 years of broadcasting. On next week's show, the last of the year, we hope we will have Dave Barry for you, along with some other comedic lookbacks at 2022. I, I don't mean to imply we're actually going to have Dave Barry on the show, although that would be fun. But we think his column will do. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.